Well, welcome to the CJN Podcast Rivkush, sponsored by the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and brought to you live from Holy Blossom Temple. My guest today, I am so overwhelmed, actually, <laughs> absolutely overwhelmed, is Jennifer Bademski. What an amazing person. Jennifer is a wonderful blend of Ashkenazi Jewish and indigenous Anishinaabe on her mom's side. And Jennifer has been in the biz for like 30 years, which I find just mind-blowing in film and television. I know, because I look 30. Well, I figure you started when you were like five, okay? So that's pretty impressive. And for the last 25 years, has been creating and producing your own stuff with your company, which is called? Red Cloud Studios. I thought so, but I wasn't sure. I should have clarified. Well, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. And I just want to kick it off by delving a little bit into who you are. Because, like I said, you're this blend of two distinct cultures. And, and how was that as you were coming up in this world? Was it a push-me-pull-you? Was it an easy blend? How did it work out for you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, let's start off with that question, right? Okay, first, I would like to say that I've been to this synagogue twice in my life for bar mitzvahs. So I grew up at Bathurst and Wilson. The hood. My father is here, Saul Padimsky, my aunt, Rachel Katz Padimsky. Can we have them She's wave? She's more of a Padimsky. Can we have them wave? Wave Let, to everybody, guys. <laughs> my daughter, too. <laughs> but she came, she came later. But... Um, but more importantly, grew up at Bathurst and Wilson, went to Ledbury, where my dad went. So this is my area. Um, so being here to have this, to share this story, uh, especially Jimmy was like, I met Jimmy when I was 11, when I went to the Native Center to start like being more involved with that part of my identity. So this is very full circle here for me today, which is excellent. Um, especially because I'm trying to do a lot of full circle moments. I just turned 50, and I think it's great to do full circle moments at those milestones. <laughs> so, um, yeah, definitely not. I think I, I had a long-term identity crisis for a, a long, long time until I felt my, uh, my true power as a storyteller and re recognized the power of using your voice and sharing you know, what's on your mind to express the things that are inside of you um, in a way that could, you know, potentially be a bridge building experience. Um, so, you know, I would ride this bus, I would ride the 7C. Oh my gosh, the does infamous Bathurst 7, of course, okay. 7C in, doesn't exist anymore. I live in Barrie now, so Bathurst I don't know 7. about buses anymore. And, it was and you the must 7C. have hit the Wilson 96 at some point so too, eh? I had to take the Wilson 96 <laughs> after the 7C until the 7E came around, because the 7E would turn left on Wilson, right? <laughs> but I would take that bus with all the kids, not from Leo Beck, from something, Bialik. And the way I was looked at because I would always wear a Jewish star. The way I was looked at on that bus from grade three, four, five, six, seven, eight, um, I always knew that I just was not quite in my element. But I grew up, as I said, at Bathurst and Wilson, so I was surrounded by Jewish people my whole life. Um, and just uh, always got the looks, because you know I think there was this idea that I didn't belong, right? Um, but on the flip side of that, I went to Hashomer Hatzair 
Camp Shamria from grade seven. And that's really where I found my place, I guess, as a, as a burgeoning activist. Okay. And uh, I guess, so growing up and having that influence really informed the person that I became. Um, also, it's my grandfather's birthday today, Joe Podemski. Uh, he would be 101. Uh, he just passed away two, a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, during COVID. But, uh, you know, he was like the ultimate philosopher. So Holocaust survivor from Lodge Poland uh, and always was interested in a deep political conversation about identity and all kinds of things. So that mixed with Camp Shomaria, mixed with, you know, being forced to grow up in this in this area. And then Adith Israel, Adith Israel in the house? <laughs> um, going to Adith Israel in grade six for theater so, class. So kind of hardcore Jewish, yeah. like kind of hardcore. Like, that was like the hood, Adith. That, that was for know. theater class. Yeah. And wow. again, the looks that I would get, you know, like, mm -hmm. but again, looking back, all of those people that I bump into today they're like oh no that you were amazing like we were friends like that's not how I saw you so clearly when you look different and you're in environments where you know people you feel like people are looking at you a certain yeah, way yeah. if I could go back and do it all again I would just have been much more I would have been building bridges a lot earlier rather than feeling you. so isolated and you. so alone and yeah. so targeted but it's hard know? I mean when you're at that age too that's I hate to say it, it's almost naturally you'd feel like, why is everybody looking at me? Because we're yeah. all about that. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, you know, exactly. who knows? Like, I always tell people when, like, a lot of people talk about white passing natives, but I, I've always been an Asian passing native because everyone yeah, just thought yeah, I, I was you. Asian I hear you. <laughs> my whole life. It's, it's like me being a black, black passing black person. I kind of get it. <laughs> Exactly. I have no idea what that's like, but it sounds exactly like that. I hear you. Yeah. Spot on. So, okay, so what about your ind indigenous side? Like, well, how did... so again, growing up here, mm -hmm. I mean, we were here for, for I guess, until uh, grade one, and then we did move to Vancouver to mm. be closer to my mom's family. So I did have like a very immersive experience living in that world. Um, I think the ultimate reality was that my parents' relationship, sorry, dad, <laughs> just live on a podcast. <laughs> my parents' relationship was, was uh, you know, challenged and there were, you know, the I think there were cultural barriers and addictions issues and all kinds of different elements and variables. Um, so nowhere was comfortable. Mm. I wasn't comfortable over there. I wasn't comfortable over here. It's hard to see your family fall apart, you know, when you're a child and um, also be sort of caught in an identity, you know, thing. Um, so then when we came back, we started going to the Native Center in Toronto, which was, again, I think a very important thing because that's where, that was all I had. Like, there's nobody else in this neighborhood. Like, No, not really. I didn't have any Indigenous friends or, you know, I had my sister. So that was a really big thing. And we sort of explored our, our, 
our identity together. Okay. And it was important that we did that together. Okay. And that's, uh, you know, I don't know if it would have been the same without her. My, my sister Tamara is five years younger, and then I have another sister, Sarah, who's 10 years younger. But it was mostly Tamara and I growing up together, mm -hmm. you know, kind of fielding and navigating the complex middle part of always being like different. Yeah, because it is complex and it is like, it's wonderful that you had a support system in your sister because not all of us are blessed that way and it's nice to have somebody to go through that journey together Absolutely. who totally 100% viscerally yeah. gets it. Yeah. So, and that brings you to here. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a little and, bit happened between, but... Well, you know, just a couple of little things. Let's just fast forward, right? <laughs> right, fast forward through your life. So, let's tell us about Little Bird. Um, and I'll preface it by saying, when I watched episode one, because I did say this to you, I was shook. I don't think there's any other expression I could possibly use. I was shook. And I should have been. Mm -hmm. it, it's not something you watch and just go, okay, that's, you know, you need to feel it. And I felt it. What brought you to that decision to produce it? Because it's a tough, hard story. Mm -hmm. I'm used to doing tough, hard stories. It seems like everything that I've done in my career has been um, really hard emotionally, mm -hmm. uh, because of the content I only have ever made, except for one short documentary about going back to Lodge Poland with my grandfather. Oh. I've only ever made indigenous content. Um, and it's always been super heavy. Um, even when you try to do comedy, it intersects with the reality of like the situation, mm -hmm. current situation that uh, we're in. So, when this project came to me, it was 2015 and it was just a, like a pitch, you know, I had known that there was a group, for some reason there was just a group of kids that mm -hmm. were, when they were taken, they mm -hmm. were sent through uh, Jewish Child Family Service in Montreal because a lot of child welfare agencies got this catalog. And the catalog, when you see it, it's, it's pretty, you know, it looks like a catalog that's selling children. Basically. Yeah, I'm getting, I got kind of it's, stuck on the word catalog. It's a catalog. Like, wow, it, catalog. It was a, it was, it's like. a terrible sort of reality, but you know, it was marketed. It was a yeah. program. Yeah. So it was out of Saskatchewan. The program was called Adopt an Indian Métis, and it was a program designed mm -hmm. to continue the removal of indigenous children and sort of filter them through the child welfare system, which was newly created at the time, like mm -hmm. in the 60s, so that the provinces would absorb the cost of, of foster care. Right. So for indigenous kids, it was like, it went from residential school and it changed hands to the province. So this program from, that started in Regina um, created these catalogs with pictures that, you know, we do tell part of that story in Little Bird. Right. Um, and then Jewish Child Family Services got one of these. So that's why there's only like a handful, as far as I know from all the research we've done and the people from the community, uh, like 28 people that were adopted at that time who were raised in Jewish homes in Montreal. So the, the production company came to me, Resolution Pictures from Montreal, and said, you know, we're sort of interested in, you know, if you would be 
if you would feel interested in making a show about this this concept of an indigenous mm-hmm. uh, girl adopted into a Jewish home because of your background, we thought maybe this would be something that you were interested in making. And anyone who like makes television knows that once you say yes to making a show, you know that you're giving like at least five to ten years of your life. That's all to make it. <laughs> You know, in Canada, wow. you usually go through like several years of development, and most of the time a show doesn't get made, right? That's just okay. like ni- 99, people can't really believe it when I say like 99% of the shows that I create don't get made. Um, so I did say yes, um, and then I had known like certain things about a bunch of different people that I had worked with already, um, even my own story. Um, not, you know, I was not fully absorbed into the system. I was only in foster care for a few weeks, as I understand it. Um, but I was very compelled to tell this story because I had known that nobody else had done it. Right. And I also really so badly wanted to tell a story that was at the intersection of Jewish identity and indigenous, like Anishinaabe in specific identity from Saskatchewan. Right. Like that was very important to me because I know how long it takes and like who else could be, who else knew all of that information right. like I do. You were the perfect fit. I'm like two consultants in one. Yeah. So there's and some money savings We right save there. a whole person. <laughs> right. So for. And maybe a few years. And a few, and a few years, <laughs> exactly. So I, I just wanted to humanize this story. I wanted to take the opportunity to explore the connection between these cultures in a way that would uplift the Jewish values that I was raised with Mm -hmm. and honor my Jewish legacy and also honor my Anishinaabe legacy. And it just seemed like not not in a selfish way, but in a way that like maybe this was why I'm here, <laughs> like right. to do this. Right. So um, that's where it all began. Well, I'm glad you did, and I think that's a great segue into looking at a clip. Um, oh. Should I set it up, please? Okay, because it's yeah. Oh, it's set it up a wee bit. I don't yeah. know <laughs> if anyone's watched the first episode, but it is on Crave. Um, so this clip is actually. An, a, an entire scene from episode four, so it's really a, kind of a spoiler, um, but uh, it's a significant one because, uh, I mean, writing it, it, it took a lot to write it. Mm-hmm. It took a lot of people, like not people, but myself and Hannah and Jeremy Padesawa, who also, his father is from Lodge Poland. And we found out also that we're related. So, uh, and he's super experienced in, you know, he does all the Game of Thrones and Station Eleven. So we were happy to have him on our team. So writing this scene was like one of the most epic moments of my life. So this right. is where she confronts her mother after being home in her community. Do you remember on my 16th birthday? I went into your office just before my party and you had all that stuff lying out on your desk. Photographs. 
of me. And in one of them, I was five years old and I was in an ad in a newspaper. And in the ad, it said that my name was Beijing. And I realized then that you changed my name. Of course we changed your name. They told us to change the name to a Jewish name. And then after the party, I asked you who my real family was. I knew I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I knew you'd be angry. Mom, you were so angry. You said, do you think a child ends up in a newspaper because her family loves her? And I didn't ask about it again. And that's how it's been between us for years. I don't ask questions. I don't talk about how much I want to find them. That's my mother and that's my father. You were wrong. They wanted me. No, that's no. It's what I found out. You were not taken care of. This is what they told us. Save these children. They need good homes. It's a mitzvah. You're not listening to me. That's my father and that's my mother and they loved me. No. I was removed because the government was taking Indian kids. We had papers saying unfit mother. Well, you don't think governments have lied before? No, this is not true. It is true. You can't just stick a new name on a person and pretend that nothing happened. And you can't take a five-year-old child away from their family and think that they're just going to forget. You should know. Have you forgotten your family that you lost? Have you forgotten your sister? I don't think so, because you named me after her. It was the right thing to do. You're not listening to me. Listen to me. No. You picked me out of an ad. Because that is how it was done. You let them take me away from my brothers and my sister. It was the right thing to do. It was wrong. It was criminal, Mom! You're a criminal! Esther! Still hard to watch. It's a little bit out of context, but... Uh, yeah. yeah Do you want to pull it a little bit into context? Them, yeah, maybe? I think that's really the turning point of, of their relationship and the hardest conversation that they have to have in the series. Um, but, you know, so much happens up until that point yeah. um, that she had gone home uh, and learned some things. But uh, in that's episode four, so there's only two more episodes after that. Um, but... I'd like to think that, you know, we walk away from this with, with a very uplifting 
deeply meaningful um, reflection of, of what a family is and what it means to find your home. And sometimes home is not a place, you know, it's a person or it's in yourself. And it's similar to what you were saying about the sacred, the sacredness of the sac that that sacred thing is not the place. It's it's the moment. Mm -hmm. So that I think is where where this story takes us. Right, right. And I see. I don't. I don't know if I want to use the word parallel, but you are the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, correct? Of one Holocaust, of survivor, Holocaust yes. survivor, yes. And Bezig's mother yes. is a Holocaust survivor, and then there's the indigenous piece together. And when I was listening to that, I also thought about you in that term. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's that connection, and even if you connect it to the land, what Canada means to people, you know, like place of refuge, and not so much yeah. a place of trauma, you know, one on each side, right? So tell me, is she a particular person? Is Bezik a particular person? How did she develop? She was created, you know, the basis for her was me. It starts usually like when you create characters, it's it comes from a very personal place for me. So that started with a 10-page, like the most personal stuff that I could share about myself with my partner Hannah and Jeremy. And it, days and days and days of talking about that. Um, we also have two advisors, one who is Nakuset, who is, was Marcy Shapiro, who was raised in Montreal and Westmount as well, um, from Manitoba. And, you know, her, her voice um, helped to shape the psychological journey of Esther. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a, another advisor with us the entire time. Her name is Raven Sinclair, also a survivor. And uh, she helped develop this character. So it was like a lot of different people um, kind of building this entire person. Um, and a, like a lot of it is real moments, not my own, okay. but they belong to other people. So Esther is really a culmination of a, a lot of people's stories. And although we only had like three actual advisors with us the whole time, I had uh, maybe 20 advisors that I worked with throughout the process um, who helped to f inform you know, her perspective, and a lot of the PTSD as well that we were sort of showcasing for her. Um, and then, yeah, the, there, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of personal stuff in there for me all, all over the place. Like, I really, I really wanted to, uh, to create Golda like my grandfather, right? Like, okay. like he, he, she is, you have to be a very, very open-minded, very special human being to have the storyline that Golda has. 
that, you know, I didn't expect my grandfather to pass away and not see this, but um, that really was created for him to, to see that, you know, he was always one for a very difficult conversation and to, you know, argue it out or debate it out and see all the sides and the perspectives and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he was very into survival. And to be into that survival like he was, it was like about like you have to find a way through stuff. So that right. was like Golda. Okay. Um, a lot of my mother is in it. A lot of my own grandparents are in it. Um, yeah, so it is a personal story that actually has nothing to do with me. <laughs> if that makes sense. It makes perfect, perfect sense. So at the... At the end of the first episode, there is a notation. I don't know what the proper word is for it, but there's a notation mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, blew my mind a little because we think with all the work, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, the work that has that is being done, that those words should not be true today. And that was the fact that it was written, there are more children, in, indigenous children in custody today than ever. Yeah. And I just stopped and thought, how? Like, what the bleep, bleep, bleep? <laughs> really? It's a really long answer. Go for it, um, because I need that answer. Because well, I, I just... So today we call it the millennial scoop. Uh, because there are more children in care today than ever before, and it is a direct uh, connection to the impact mostly of residential school, although there were things prior to that. But, um, you know, I am second-generation residential school survivors. Both of my grandparents went to residential school, to Labrette in Saskatchewan, and, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible things happened at residential school by design. It was not, you know, many survivors that we speak to, because I've worked a lot with survivors in my storytelling work, um, call it, uh, you know, a children's prison, and some call it extermination camps, because they were killing children. And we know that now, because, I mean, we always knew it, but we know it now because of, you know, all of the, the, uh, the children's bodies being found. Um, but uh, terrible things happen there. And then, you know, that the last residential school closed in 1996, and already kids were, you know, the 60 Scoop had already kind of taken full full uh, energy. Mm-hmm. So it's we're not very far removed from that dismantling of families. Right. And that's all by design in the Indian Act, it's all in there. It's all in the legislation. It says, like, remove the Indian in the child. That's the legislation that still exists today. Um, And to do that, you need to, you know, go to exceptional measures to ensure that that's done and that there's no more kids so that, you know, the land becomes available and the resources become available and all of that stuff. So it's all kind of connected, much more political than I said it, but um, the situation is bad. It's dire. You know, here in Toronto, it's easy 
to not ever see it. But if you live anywhere else, like anywhere north of Toronto or, you know, east or west of Toronto or, you know, any other place in Canada pretty much, you know, um, you have Georgina Island right over here. Like a lot of people have cottages in Jackson Point mm -hmm. and can enjoy running water and clean water. And the reserve that's right on the island there is like no clean water, you know, no access to fresh water. Right here, 45 right minutes here. from we, Toronto. You know, we're always talking about yeah. way up north. People can say, oh, that's yeah. so far away. It's, you know, 18,000 hours, exactly. but it's not. And water, as like a fundamental kind of yeah. necessity, uh. it becomes one of the like real points of dismantling a community. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's just like an entry point into why it is so still such a devastating reality and you know going back to um you know this idea that i mean it was illegal for indigenous people to vote until i think someone can correct me but the late 70s i believe 78 or 79 something like that yeah, so I we were not seen yeah. as human beings mm -hmm. until like led it through legislation till like the 80s or something like that um, in particular, you know. correct me if I'm wrong, because I remember as like a high schooler and I would, was reading about the, the Indian Act and there was even rules around women and you yeah. know, if you dare to leave there, you lose yeah, your status so and all that stuff. I'm right? a product also of mm -hmm. something called Bill C-31, which mm -hmm. because my mom and dad, my dad's not native, my mom lost her status. Which, which meant that, uh, you know, there's all those treaty obligations mm -hmm. that we spoke, you spoke about um, didn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So there was a time when um, there was, you know, a huge fight to get status back because that, as a, as a legislation, is really, you know, very sexist. Because mm -hmm. if a man, there's a lot of white women or non-Indigenous women mm -hmm. who married Indigenous men who have niche. full status. Yeah which is so strange. So that was all reversed with Bill C-31. Mm -hmm. So then when I was 12, I got my status mm -hmm. card, um, which essentially ties you to a reserve, essentially, and the services that are uh, you know, provided by right. that reserve. But they're very minimal, right? They're the most minimal kind of services. So like the idea that you know, indigenous people don't pay tax and get all these free things. Because there are all those things running around and the people are like, oh, I wish I could have a status yeah. card because then I don't have to pay. Yeah. And it's like, are you serious right now? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah so that's, you know, that's just a misconception. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, there, so the reason, the answer to your question is you know, the reason those numbers are high and the reason that indigenous people represent you know, the, the, the lowest outcomes when it comes to health and education and you know, uh, the, the things that most of us take for granted um, are because they're still, you know, living very much in a colonial violent state mm -hmm. um, with very few rights. Um, yeah, and that, I guess that legacy continues and, and I don't have the answers to how that is going to end, but I know that a lot of it has to do with voting. I know a lot of it has to do with, uh, support and allyship and you know the education system you know even today like hearing about what you're doing at uh at um what is it called the school here leo, leo beck. beck like 
that is remarkable, you know, to have any kind of education that is infused with some awareness of social uh, responsibility. Um, because I don't think that, uh, I don't think we're gonna raise a very good generation of children if we don't start um, figuring out ways to address, you know, some of the more devastating social realities, especially for indigenous people, like who are at the lowest um, outcomes of all people, um, but for everybody. Absolutely, and it shouldn't just be like a slogan or the, the cause of the day. It is a deep-rooted situation, and we have to break that cycle. And, you know, I say to people when it comes to anti-Semitism, when it comes to anti-black racism, the onus isn't on Jews or on people of color to fix it. The onus is on those of us to fix it. Yeah. Not, it's not, because you hear that too. You'll hear people say, well, you know, they should do this. And they, no, we need to step up. Mm -hmm. And like you just said, it starts with something as simple as education. You know, I, I'm, I'm a child. I don't child think education is that simple, though. I no, think no, that's no. how it all, yeah, I all starts. I shouldn't say as simple as, but it needs to start with that. You know, I remember coming, growing up in the Toronto public school system, and, and I'm a woman of a certain age, and it was barely a topic. Anything that I wanted to know, I had to figure it out for myself, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it should never be that way. And we have to start somewhere. So before we open it up to questions, what is your challenge to those of us here? What, would, what do you wish, what do you see? I should have thought about this answer. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think there's a certain thing and a, you see it a lot in Saskatchewan for some reason because there's like a very rich Jewish community in Saskatchewan and a very rich indigenous community and often you'll see those two people partnering to to make social change and for some reason Saskatchewan is like the place where it happens the most um, and I think that if we can do that elsewhere and find the thing that you know, connects those communities. There is so much more power mm -hmm. um, in, you know, the ability to make change. And it could be, you know, very, very valuable change, you know, and I think that everybody uh, has found themselves in a situation where, you know, they, intersect with something or someone indigenous or a community that's indigenous um, where they have a choice to be an adversary or or an ally right so the I guess the call to action would be to lean towards being an ally and finding you know your common values towards um, dismantling systemic racism because Absolutely. it does start in education and it does continue into the workplace and it does continue into the sectors, like, you know, all of the sectors. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I only know from my industry that I think it was very much propaganda that got us 
to where we have a society that never thinks about indigenous people. Mm. And if they do, they think about them very negatively or poorly. Right. That was propaganda, that was by design, it was in the newspapers, mm -hmm. it was you know, a big PR campaign, you know, come to Canada, free land, you know, we have all this stuff for mm -hmm. you. We're gonna hide all these people over here and uh, put them into these schools. So I think that, um, especially coming from a value system, and I only know Jewish value system and indigenous, like <laughs> Anishinaabe value system, and the thing that, that I've learned through my Jewish value system is to, I mean, for me, it's always to find the answer to do what's right and what's good for the whole community. And what, what's right for the whole community means that you can't leave anybody behind. Right. Because exactly. that's how bad things happen. Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the things that your, your um, series shows is that we own a part of this too as Jews. We own a part of this um, narrative that has happened over all these years. And it's down to us to not, to, to take what we know now and to be the allies that we need to be, 100%. Yeah. So do we have any questions? I have the mic, I can run. <laughs> oh, come on, you know you all do. There you go. I can sort of run. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. It's really a pleasure to see you in person. I've followed you for a number of years, and um, it's just so nice to have you here tonight. Thank, Thank you. Um, as an educator, uh, vice principal, and an instructional leader, I know I hear what you're saying about education, and I believe in truth before reconciliation. And as I'm thinking forward to our school improvement and our planning, what do you think would be the most important thing to focus on. And while we're, we have a lot of teachers who are doing very wonderful things, we have a lot of teachers who are very uncomfortable in their role of being an ally and a co-conspirator, so to speak, because they're nervous of making a mistake. They're nervous about not being the expert. And they're having difficulty with that fine line between appreciating and appropriating and don't know when they've crossed it. Mm -hmm. So as an instructional leader, what can I take back to make them feel more comfortable about speaking the truth, especially when you're talking about you know, very young children as young as three and a half, four years old? I think, I mean, just to reference a conversation that I have with my daughter and have had over her schooling, she's in grade seven. She's still here. <laughs> um, we talk a lot about critical thinking and like how do we teach critical thinking in a way that will, you know, expose a child to a different perspective, right? Uh, and I'm not really sure the way into it for younger people, but I know, for example, at her school, like in grade two and three and four, like when they were younger, uh, I would go in and I would talk about, you know, things like, 
like we would do drumming and just like the things that would introduce like that cultural perspective to them. Um, and then in like grade four and five, start to talk about like the curriculum that they're learning about um, this misconception that in native people were wiped out and that they live in history. So to contemporize contemporize um, the our existence in a way that you know even just introduces a child to like a native person, I think is a very good step. Um, I know that TDSB and where I'm at Simcoe County, like they have an FNM, FMNI like organization body. Um, I think it's important to take as many resources as possible and start start backwards, like start from the content, just introducing kids to contemporary indigenous stories, which can be very like subtle. And then once you help people realize like, oh, we're here today, like we're not this thing of the past, um, then you can start going into the more critical thinking about, oh, well, if that's that perspective, well, what's this perspective? You know, and like, I like to empower children and, and youth to think about like all of the incredible things we have today in this society that were here for thousands of years, that were invented like for survival on in this climate, um, all of the amazing things that everybody inherited instead of focusing on, you know, the negative headline stuff. I think that those are good ways to start. Always enter with something you know positive and empowering and uplifting as an introduction because then it's in the consciousness, and you know when you start to reveal the more difficult conversations, um, they're maybe easier to understand. Hi there, that was so powerful. I have to thank you so much. Um, what I was wondering is how do you bring in the rest of society, including the parents of the children that are non-Indian and non-Jewish, those people that might not have experienced in their background racism. Like for Jews and Indians and many of us, it's like, yeah, it's inherent. But there's a lot of people that hold incredible stereotypes or, and it's like they would be relying on their children to educate them um, and they may have attitudes. So I'm just wondering. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think. Um I've been at, definitely been at the intersection of racism for both of my cultures, for sure, and it's, it's real. Um, especially living, like in Barrie, for example, uh, it is a very interesting conversation to even introduce like Jewish stuff and like break down Jewish stereotypes while also you know, the the indigenous stereotypes. So I think the way in again is like humanizing. Humanizing experiences, not necessarily talking about the hard negative things, but talking about like current human experiences and how uh, just to get people thinking about those those people and people in general who are outside of their community because it's, 
you know, on the indigenous side, I think people are very threatened, you know, who have, people who have been here for five generations or six generations say, well, where do I belong then if this isn't my homeland? You know, there's that conversation. These are hard conversations to have. Um, and when people talk about, um, you know, Jewish identity and, and Israel and those hard conversations, like, unfortunately, there's just a lot of work to be done. Stories are a great way to do it. Like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of TV out there that you could share, I think, you know, and I think it's a good way, a good way in. Little Bird. <laughs> okay, I think we have time for one more question, and I'll take this here. Okay, I'll just preface it that I am a parent from Montreal originally. We moved to Toronto seven years ago. Uh, I think in 1970, uh, maybe 71 and 74, my ex-wife and I adopted two children. I didn't hear about the scoop from any social worker in Montreal. Do you have any, in, any insight? I, I, I'm guessing that the social workers out west kind of knew about it, but did the, the gal in Montreal who was involved, um, I don't think she knew. I would say absolutely not. Hmm? I would say they did not know at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Jewish Family Services. And, you know, <laughs> the first thing my ex-wife said when my son arrived is we're changing his name. And we did. Um, I have good contact with him now. He's 52, lives in Regina. He, <laughs> just as an aside, uh, and he doesn't live a Jewish life and he doesn't live a native life but um, called me one day and said, where can I get Manischewitz wine in Regina? So I said, I, I don't know, but maybe they have a liquor commission there. You can go there and ask. And he went in and uh, he asked the clerk. The clerk said, yeah, in the back we have some kosher wine. And as he was coming back to pay, a woman, and he looks very indigenous, if you want to say Asian or whatever. Uh, okay, because I don't know if I look Jewish, but sometimes we say she looks very Jewish or whatever, uh, or talks Jewish. Um, the woman said, excuse me, but why are you interested in kosher wine? And he said, because I'm Jewish. What's your name? Adam Levine. Not the singer. <laughs> So, as he was going, he says, do you know where I can buy a challah? <laughs> and she said, well, no, there's only about a thousand Jewish families in Regina. And she thought for a second, and she says, why don't you come to my house Friday, next Friday night? She was the Rebetzin of the Chabad <laughs> rabbi. There. Anyway, just, uh, my daughter was not so as successful. Both of them went through the law uh, as system. law system as teenagers. Um, I kind of feel fortunate that I learned the hard way about something I would have overlooked 
about the indigenous population. And um, I mean, you know, <laughs> did I ever think as a young man growing up I would adopt a child? It was, even that was very formal. And my parents were terribly upset. And my dad wanted to know why my ex-wife and I were not, when were we going to have a kid? But that was impossible, so. Wow, I think that was a fitting yeah. last comment. Um, okay, let's take a breath. First of all, I would like to thank Holy Blossom for hosting us. I'd like to thank the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, which I've been practicing saying, and I did it, <laughs> for sponsoring and also for uh, uh, organizing this event. But I save my biggest thanks for you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Riff Koosh. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Music by Westside Gravy and I am Riff Koosh. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more at the cjn.ca slash Riff And support us by subscribing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>